Smorgasbord. I'm Tom Shapira, and with me as always... Hello, I'm Sean Edry. Ah, my nipples! Okay. When that scene came back in the second part of, uh, of Guardians 2, I laughed my ass off. I know that movie has problems, but I laughed. That's good. L- laughing is important, uh, yeah. especially in this, day, this fallen day and age. This is a comic book podcast brought to you by the fine folks at Seaport. Go to Seaport.org to get the best in comic books and pop culture's news, reviews, and critique. Buy their books, read their articles, and watch their movies. And remember, we're also on Patreon. Support smart criticism and comics. So there's been a lot of things going on over the last two weeks, so I suggest we just jump on straight to the news. Yes, as usual, I'm starting to think that we should turn this into like a regular corner for all that it happens every single episode. We need to start with a creator having died. Uh, that's, uh, okay, and this time <laughs> it's... It, it, oh, it's uh, last time it was uh, Leo Baxendale, a veteran of the British comic industry. He was at least 80 plus years old, so... Not unexpected, this one is quite a shock for those of us not in the know. A longtime British artist Edmund Bagwell died at only age 50 from a pancreatic cancer. He was known for his work in various uh, British publishers from the 90s onward, including Marvel UK, where he did stuff like Black Axe or uh, Mortarmouth and Kill Power. That's not two titles, by the way. There was a title called Mortarmouth and Kill Power. And, of course, like just about anybody else in the United Kingdom, he did a lot of 2000 AD work. He, he did a Cradle Grave, he did 10 Seconders, he did some Judge Dredd stuff. And his last published work, as far as I know, was a Cadet Anderson serial, which was just recently collected as Cadet Anderson Teenage Kicks. K-Y-X. Kicks. Ooh. Uh, his family have asked for all, for donations to be made on his behalf to the pancreatic cancer charities, if you're so interested. I haven't seen a lot of his work because he wasn't somebody I especially looked for. It wasn't someone whose work I've hunted, but after he died and people start uploading stuff, I said, oh yes, I've seen him here, I've seen him there, and he was a very, very good artist, and by all accounts, a fine person overall. So yeah, I hadn't actually recognized the name until you said that he did 10 Seconders. Hmm. That was when it sort of clicked, because I, I remember that. That's one of the more outstanding uh, series that came out of 2000 AD in sort of like the turn of the century. Yeah, I, I so. was going to read that in the future. I have this long to-read list for 2000 AD stuff, and I think uh, it just got bumped up about you know five or six places. Uh, it's 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 sad. Like it, it's terribly sad. So young from such a terrible disease, and again, if you want to help, I guess every every penny counts. Go and uh, go and donate on his behalf. Yeah, you know it's the same. I realize that I do bring up the same refrain repeatedly when we talk about creators who've passed. But really, the only consolation, I suppose, is the fact that their work will remain in circulation. I'm sure that 2000 AD isn't just going to, like, stop selling the 10 Seconders or other series that he's done. You know, he, he, it, he's still accessible in some way. So there's some small comfort in that, I suppose. Yeah, again, like you said last time, this is the Internet age. Nothing gets lost now. So Yeah, nothing's wor- gone forever. Yeah, his work will live on. 
Well, since we're talking 2000 AD uh, and a bit of a happier news, uh, Rebellion, the video game company that owns the 2000 AD magazine, has announced that there is a new Judge Dredd TV show coming up under the title Judge Dredd Mega City 1. Uh, yeah. Rebellion has teamed up with something called Iron Global Television, and they're looking for big budget commitments from networks in North, in North America and Europe. And they're talking about something well above the one million pounds per hour budget, which is amen, which is as high, I think, as a as a TV show has ever been in Britain. Be- stuff in the US is more expensive. Like your Game of Thrones is, I think, six million dollars per episode, something like that. Yeah, but but still, that's a huge budget. And when you consider that the the Dread movie, the 2012 Dread movie movie was the most expensive movie ever produced in the UK. They're mm. aiming high. Um, I hope it'll work. Well, I, I do want to say this. Like, when I heard this, new, two things stood out to me. Like, I had these two thoughts. First of all, there has been an update on this story, which is that they are courting Carl Urban. Mm, yeah. They're well, trying to get him back as Dread, which I would be all for, because he was perfect. You know, I'm, I'm okay with that. I'm, uh, I think every fan would be happy for it. The question is if someone who is... Well, not a huge name, but is a movie star and uh, working. Uh, He's still, you know, they're still doing those Star Trek sequels, the the movie, and he gets work there. Will he be willing to negotiate down for a British TV uh, salary? I'll tell you what the the thing is. He really likes the part. We we know that unlike many other people who's who's saying online, oh, yes, I really, I always love that character that I never read before. Orban really liked playing Judge Dredd, so the good well, there's there. There's that, and there's also the fact that he has said on more than one occasion, you know, yes, he is playing uh, Dr. McCoy on the Star Trek reboot, but it's not like those movies require much of him. I think I remember hearing, like, he was doing some interview for the second one, the one with uh, Benadryl Cucumber, and he was talking about how... You know, he he made sort of like a joke that suggested he wasn't really happy with the fact that he didn't do anything in that movie. Like, it was really a bit part. So you're saying, like, yeah, it would be kind of a downgrade for him to go back to TV. Let's not forget that he used to be on Xena. Hmm. So I get that. But on the others, like, the flip side of that would be if this thing went forward and he was dread, he would be the star of the show. Now, they are talking. uh, They've said in the Phil Power... Overlord podcast, the 2080 podcast, that they're aiming for a broader canvas approach. That's what they're calling it, Judge Dread Mega City One, and not just Judge Dread TV or whatever. They're mm-hmm. trying to do like the whole, I guess, the wire for the Dread World, which is a good choice because it allows them to use all the great side characters they've produced over the years, as yeah. well as not being limited to. There's a big bad coming up, and Judge Dread shoots it. See, I think that's actually one area where, as much as it amazes me that the two versions of the Judge Dredd movie could have anything in common, the one thing that I think they both failed to do was to really create a stronger sense of Mega City 1 as a setting. Because in the in the Carl Urban movie, it was just the, the block, right? The, yeah, one it was building. the one building. Yeah. Yeah, and then in the Stallone movie, it was just sort of like your typical cyberpunk-esque thing. There wasn't anything unique about it. 
if you are creating a TV show with a broader perspective, you do have the ability to really flesh out Mega City One. And I think to a great extent, you know, the reason that there's a Dread verse at all in, in 2000 AD isn't because Dread is that fascinating a character. It's because Mega City One has allowed so many creators to do interesting and unusual things in that setting without stepping on Dread's toes. You know, you've had like Banzai Battalion and you've had uh, stories on the moon and you've had uh, the Chopper. Under- the underground du- judges. The, yeah, the, you've the, had... The Cursed Earth Auxiliary, you can do like a half season of Dread as like a marshal in the Outlands. You sure. Can do, you can do pretty much everything and anything in the Judge Dread world. It's huge. Yeah. It's gigantic. And, and I think that efforts to use that so far haven't really worked out. So if that's their remit here, if they really are looking to make more of the fact that Mega City 1 is an interesting setting and just have Dread be there, then I think that's, you know, that's the best possible approach for an ongoing TV series, right? Assuming that this is not meant to be some kind of six episodes and then it's done thing, if they really want to commit to it, that's the way to go. Mm. Now, okay. speaking of television adaptations and what not to do, uh, the first promo image for the Inhumans TV show leaked. I wish I could tell you, Tom, details about this promo image, but my eyes have been unable to leave Medusa's wig since the moment that image came up because I have not seen a wig so fake since Ronald McDonald himself. And I need some help here. Because there may, uh, there may be other details in this photo that speak to the quality and possible directions of the Inhumans. I'm stuck on that hair. I cannot look away. So help me, Tom. You're I, my only hope. I really can't help you. It, do- it doesn't look too good, but I can't say I'm disappointed because I had no expectation whatsoever. And the chances of me watching it are somewhere between slim to none, I guess. But I want to take us back to that hair for a second. Okay. Tom, what's up, what's up with that hair? I like, okay, we're talking about Medusa here, right? Mm. And Medusa's thing we all know is that her hair is like alive, right? It, it goes, it fights, it hits people. Why am I looking at this woman who I swear to God looks like Lindsay Lohan? I'm not joking and I'm not making that up as an insult. She looks like Lindsay frickin' Lohan. Staring right at the camera with this fake weave that is like Beelzebub red. What is this, Tom? I guess it's all they're trying to make it all post-CGI work? Or... I I don't know. Maybe the first episode is like, Oh, Queen Medusa... Why did you have your hair cut? You've lost all your parts. Oh, I just wanted to change. But it's like fire engine fake red. Like, if you wanted to do that, you could do like Famke Jensen did when she was Jean Grey. Just have it be like a dark red so it looks more natural. This is like bright traffic light red. I don't... Ay, ay, ay. It's, it's it not like Black Bolt looked any better. Oh, Black Bolt just looks generic. Like, I don't yeah. know what anyone was expecting, because you knew you're, that they weren't going to they weren't gonna put that Kirby tuning. Why not put the no, Kirby I'm, design? What not? That's no, no. The whole, that's look, the whole point look. of doing a Kirby character, right? No, they weren't going to put a tuning fork on his head. 
the problem with like once you make Kirby designs real, you start to realize that they look like other things, right? Black Bolt basically had a tuning fork on his forehead for 40 years. It's not a good look. Now, mind you, Crystal in this promo shot has like the black stripes on her blonde hair, which look so incredibly fake. I just, and I don't know, you know, like, let's be real here. I don't know why I'm reacting as if I'm surprised because from the moment they said that they were going to put this on ABC, it's like, okay, ABC doesn't have budget for a spy show set in the Marvel Universe with maybe two people who have superpowers. You expect me now to believe that what you're going to do is do the Inhuman Royal Family on that same kind of budget. They it described looks like it a porn as movie. them being in Hawaii or something and meeting regular humans. Am I right? I, uh, you're giving I, me I, too much credit. I saw I, that I, photo I, and it was I like... I believe that's the, the, the plot description and all I could think of wasn't that Lilo and Stitch. <laughs> Ohana means family. No one gets left behind. Well, yeah, because it's the royal family. What's what's the stitch word for royal family? Now, see, the problem... There has been a meme that has been making the rounds. And uh, granted that we are a PG-13 podcast, but I don't think it'll surprise our listeners to know there is such a thing as superhero porn parodies, right? We oh, know this. Obviously. Yeah, so the, someone took that promo shot and just put, like, an Axel Braun in Humans XXX parody, and I swear to God, I couldn't tell the difference. Mm. I mean, it does look that low budget, so I don't know what ABC is thinking. I don't know what Marvel's thought process well, is here. I, Clearly, you know, I, I do think that this kind of confirms... That they have lost, they are finally starting to lose confidence in the Inhumans as a sales replacement for the X-Men. Cause this is not gonna be a cinematic universe, this is not gonna be, you know, they are sending it out to die. What I think what they're thinking is this, even though the budget is low and the reviewers aren't that hot, Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. is now, what, five seasons in and doesn't seem to be cancelled anytime soon. So they're thinking the Marvel brand is strong enough that we'll get something out of it. We can basically make it on a shoestring budget and some people will watch it and we'll sell commercial time and we'll be fine. Mm. I guess. Because, I mean, that's, that's setting because, it really, really low. Because according to, you know, Netflix, Iron Fist was the most successfully rated TV show they had in quite a long while. I refuse to believe that. That well, is a lie, Tom. That is a lie. It, this brand is... Well, it's the Hulk, right? This brand, at this point, is as strong as it can be, and they can do anything, and they'll get something out of it, and they'll need to do, like, a long string of failed launches in order for them to lose something, in, lo- in order for them to lose the audience trust. At this point, yeah, even, if it's, even if it's terrible, people will still watch it because they say, well, I want to know what happens in the other things. Well, that assumes the level every, of connectivity... Every, every, I mean, that's the thing, right? It assumes a level of connection that is true for Netflix. Like, the only scenario where I can accept that Iron Fist had people who actually watched it through to the end is if the mindset going into it is, okay, you are aware that this is part of the Defenders. You're going to watch it as bad as it is on the off chance that it's going to be relevant to the overall plot. In humans, to the best of my knowledge, 
if it's going to be connected to anything, it's going to be connected to Agent of Shield. Uh, but sure. I don't. I I, I, don't I guarantee know. to you that there are many people who are going to watch this episode so that they can understand some joke that that will be made in Avengers: Infinite War. For like two no. seconds, somebody will say, no way. oh, look, we passed over a Y, there's this red-headed chick, and somebody the no. audience will be, oh my god, they've mentioned Medusa, I've seen that show, I know what they're talking about. Now we're that's like, I mean, look. Marvel, that's my Marvel TV viewer voice. Not gonna, oh, great. very accurate, very accurate, first of all. <laughs> <laughs> great impresario, right? But I... But I don't think it's going to happen, and I'll tell you why, only because, like, when you look at existing evidence, Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. just wrapped up its fourth season, right? The movies have not yet acknowledged that Coulson is alive. And we've had a couple of Avengers movies and movies about, like, S.H.I.E.L.D. being reconstituted. We've seen Nick Fury coming back, right? We've had all of these scenes, and not once has anyone ever said, you know, or even mentioned... Colson or Shield or Ghost Rider or like the the at this point it may have been earlier on there may have been some kind of concept of the show feeding from the Marvel universe the cinematic universe and maybe feeding stuff back into it in a subtle way I don't think that that's happening anymore I don't think that there's ever going to be a situation where a Marvel cinematic universe film will use the word inhuman. I think you'll see the X-Men there before you see Inhumans. Because, you know, there were all those rumors about the problems between Feige and Perlmutter. Whether that's true or not, it doesn't even matter, right? The central issue is they've already created this very, very huge divide between what happens on the non-Netflix TV shows and what happens in the films? There, it's you know, think about all the other shows that are coming out. We've been talking about Cloak and Dagger. The uh, Runaways had a trailer, right? All of these things are happening supposedly in the same universe, but even even the Netflix shows, which have enough quality cash where you'd think there'd want to be a tie-in, the, what do they always say, right? They always say the incident, right? There's yeah. no direct referentiality. So I think they are trying to hedge their bets and create a distance between what you know what is happening on the TV shows where they are limited by very very specific budget restrictions that put that wig on Medusa. Okay, uh, should we go speaking on to the of final TV, TV options. part? Yes. Now this one I'm a little more curious about because. I haven't thought about this in a very long time. Uh, Wayward, the image series by Jim Zub, has been optioned for TV. What yeah, are your Jim thoughts Zub on Jim Zub and Stephen Cummings. We've yeah. actually talked about issue number one, I think, in our very first episode, or was it the second one? One of the very first, yeah. Yeah, yeah, so like a deep cut of smorgasbord history there. Uh, for but those did you, you ever go back? Remember, uh, Wayward is a fantasy, modern fantasy series about a Japanese-Irish girl who goes to live with her family in Japan, and she discovers she has the power to see yokai, uh, Japanese spirits, monsters, and she helps like other group of supernaturally inclined teenagers to fight them. So it's Japanese Buffy, basically, for a while. I, I guess. It's still ongoing, so I assume stuff has changed and evolved. But I haven't been following after the first arc, which was okay-ish. It was an mm. okay series. 
right. now the interesting thing is that the people who acquired it for the TV adaptation are Manga Entertainment, which are UK's largest anime distributor, and they haven't said if they're acquired it in order to make a live-action TV show or an animated TV show. Oh, the plot thickens. So it's, it, yeah, so it's... Uh, because it could be both, right? Is there, uh, is there a Buffy replacement airing right now? I guess Wynonna Earp fills the niche? Um, Supernatural no. has... Supernatural has ended, right? No. Supernatural is still ongoing? Supernatural has been renewed. Oh, my 17 gods. Indeed. I think it's like season 15 or 16 by this well, point. They're no longer like young adult. Well, they have, they're like in their 20s. I, I think now they're in their mid 50s or something. Yeah, in, in the latest episode, uh, they hide their demon killing powers in their fake teeth. Their so, dentures have been cursed. So there is a place for that kind of show. I think there's sure. a place for that kind of show. It's But right now, we know absolutely nothing about it other than the rights have been acquired. Yeah. I mean, honestly, if they have the choice, considering that so many quality shows have been coming out specifically in animation, right? Look at the critical reception to Voltron. Look at the critical reception to... You're having, like cartoons on Netflix now. People going crazy over Attack on Titan or whatever. So, like, it, it would not be the worst thing in the world to make Wayward animated. Yep. Not and, at all. And you know what? It's, one, it's my opinion that even if this show turns out to be crap, I'm happy because independent creators Jim Zub and Stephen Cummings will get their paycheck no matter what. Yeah. And, and this will probably shift some more trade, so it's good for Image, and it's good for them, and it's good for the comics industry as a whole, even yeah. if those TV adaptations are garbage, and they often well, are, they often yeah. are, it's, you know, as much as I hate the Watchmen movie, which was a terrible, terrible thing, if it made couple thousands of people that would otherwise never notice it, say, well, what's this Watchmen thing, I'll, I better order one, and they've read it, well... As far as I'm concerned, it's di it did its job. Well, see, Watchmen is maybe not the best example because I can't imagine anybody coming to comics and being like, what is this Watchmen thing? If you ask the question, what is this Watchmen thing, you will receive an answer very quickly. That wasn't like, you know, that's usually the first thing they shove at okay, people. Okay, like, the, the Walking Dead. I want to read comics. Walking, what should I read? The Walking Dead then. Not even that either. I would say more something like, because the thing about Wayward, right, the thing to remember about it is that it's actually not one of Image's flagship titles. Like, when you say to someone who is entering the field of comics, like, what should I read from Image? You're probably not going to start with Wayward, right? You would start with something that has been running for long enough and has a proven enough uh, background in, in terms of popularity. You'd probably throw out The Walking Dead. You'd probably throw out Saga. Invincible, well, if, even. Well, if somebody asked me... What could I start with image that's Buffy-like? <laughs> well, I'd say Wayward. Ex well, that, that's kind of specific, though. Yeah, and even then, even then, there's a case to be made that if you wanted, like, the Buffy feel of it, you would actually probably be better served either by Rat Queens or by Paper Girls. If or you just, were looking... F or just saying, well, you don't have to do image. Hex is in print. Or, or Boom actually does have a lot of that, too, yeah, right? Yeah. So, yeah... In in that sense, I would say what it could help is, and really what I would like to see more of, I think, 
are adaptations of more, not necessarily obscure image titles, but more B-list and C-list titles that actually do need the help. Because I don't think, you know, you and I have different opinions about the Watchmen film. I don't think it's that terrible. I'm not going to rewatch it anytime soon. But, you know, it was fine, whatever. But the thing about it is, you know, Watchmen didn't need the help. The whole reason that Alan Moore is, like, hunched over a cauldron right now casting spells and trying to bring down Burbank is because that book has never gone out of sale, yeah. right? It has never failed to sell copies. So Watchmen didn't need... It's like saying, you know, let's do a Man of Steel movie. Why? Is Superman at risk of losing sales anytime soon? No. Right? So if you're going to do it, yeah, take titles like Wayward, take titles like, you know, we, we mentioned Revival, right? Revival is getting some kind of adaptation. Titles that were not necessarily at the... F- even now, they're not at the forefront of, you know, it's not something that Image promote as, here are our A-list titles. It's not that. So I'm, I'm okay with it. I'm, I'm I, actually I'm really, willing I'm really to give it a shot. I'm surprised that nobody did an Alex and Ada TV show yet. Al, listen, I mean, when you think about the sheer amount of IP you could farm out of Image, even, you know what, even from stuff that was canceled... How is Peter Panzerfaust not a movie? How is Umbral not a TV show? How is Egos not an animated series, right? Like, there are a lot of things that they sort of put out there. Or, you know, Bedlam could be like an HBO, Showtime, Dexter sort of thing, right? Uh, what's, what was the one with all the serial killers? Uh, Finger something? Nailbiter. Nailbiter, right. You know, there are a lot of stuff out there. And I, I guess like they may be waiting to build more awareness because Image doesn't really have that. But if no. they did, you know, it's a no, because huge, it's, huge you know, field. Because it's, it's not about the brand in Image. It's about solo creators. People, when people talk about the Walking Dead TV show, they don't say that Image TV show. They say that Robert Kirkman TV show. Charlie, right. But Charlie, Charlie Aldred, Robert Kirkman TV show. Sure, but as you pointed out, there's always a possibility of crossover, right? If a yeah. title becomes successful in film or television, that could feed back into sales. Yeah, hopefully. Again, that's what yeah. I'm hoping for. Uh, now, one speaking of, of media, bit of media yes. news. Hang on, hang uh, on. Before we get started, let me get my uh, Mike Mignola voodoo doll, because we got some problems here, and I, I need to oh, really? uh, channel yeah, some I, aggression outward. I, I don't have many problems. Uh, Mike Mignola has announced that there's a new Hellboy film in the works. This is not a continuation of the previous Hellboy films. This is a reboot. It's to be directed by the horror fantasy director Neil Marshall. He did The Descent. He did Doomsday, which I really liked. I think he did several Game of Thrones episodes over the last two or three seasons. Mm-hmm. And they're talking about David Harbour, who was the sheriff in Stranger Things, as the new Hellboy. Uh, the title has been announced... They're going to call it Hellboy Rise of the Blood Queen, which, as far as I know, is not any Hellboy story that's been published in comics, so it's not a direct adaptation. Mm -hmm. And they're talking about an R rating as well, which is, as we've discussed before, something that Hollywood does right now with any comic book movie. Any comic book movie announced right now is a hard R. It's like, yeah, the new Batman is R, the new Wolverine is R, the new Spawn movie is R. Sugar and Spike, obviously, R-rated. Lumberjanes, <laughs> R-rated. Yes, obviously. <laughs> Not the R-rated Lumberjanes. That's, 
it's it's not something that I'm negative for when it comes to Hellboy, but it is weird to me because I've read I think eighty percent of the Hellboy comics, not not all the spin-off stuff, but the actual Hellboy comics, and there are some disturbing scenes and some horror, but there's nothing gory about it, and he doesn't swear, and there's hardly any sex, and most of the violence is like generic monster fighting fantasy violence. There's mm-hmm. nothing about a hell about all the Hellboy comics that I've read that I wouldn't give to like a twelve year old boy. I mean, he might he might not like it, but I wouldn't say like, "Ooh, that might be too hard for you, Sonny Jim." Mm. It's just, so it's I like you wouldn't. To, it's not uh, I, big man plans. Let's put it that way. No, no, no. It's it's, it's Mignola. It's he doesn't do stuff like that. Yeah, it's it's, I, it's, it's a it's, I have we, to. it's a weird choice, and I have to assume it's simply because of the fashion right now to announce everything is R rated after the success of Deadpool and Logan. I mean, you're on the R rating. I'm still stuck on the fact that I don't want this reboot to exist. I I don't see why not. I ooh 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 ooh. I begrudge this film's existence, and I'll tell you why. For years now, okay, okay. I understand rationally that the prospect of a third Hellboy film with Ron Perlman and Guillermo del Toro was not going to happen. I understand that. I've processed it. And, like, I'm in the process of accepting it. To then say, let's reboot the damn thing again. You know, it's like... uh, Enough with the reboots. Enough with the remakes. We don't... First of all... Hopper from Stranger Things, the guy's an okay actor, he's no Ron Ron Perlman, and that will be the metric that he will be compared to, and it's not going to work. Okay? When you look at... We're not talking about movies that came out 30 years ago, 40 years ago, where remaking them has some kind of innate benefit. If I wanted to, at this very moment, I could queue up Hellboy. You know, I can queue up uh, the the second one, the, the Golden Army. And see well, these things you, for you'd myself. Ha- you'd have to watch the Golden Army then. And do you really want that? Do you? It wasn't that really? bad. I mean, you know. <laughs> the... Okay, it wasn't bad. It wasn't very good either. And here's the no. thing about why I think the Hellboy reboot is well not necessary, but is something that could work. Is that the Hellboy movies? As more and more that I think about them, are Mike uh, are not Mike Mignola's Hellboy. There are Guillermo del Toro's Hellboy. And the Golden Army specifically is a Guillermo del Toro movie from top to bottom starring Mike Mignola created characters. And the Mignola's style, the more contemplative post-Jim Henson storyteller type of odd things and dream logic and and more calm narrative uh, build-up of gothic horror is so different. So and since to Mignola its benefit, it, I would argue. And, well, I you're not the world's biggest Hellboy fan. I'm not the world's biggest Hellboy fan, but I recognize why people like Mignola's style. And since he owns the right, and he announced the movie, I have to assume that they're doing. And with Neil Marshall, who's a horror director, have you seen his films? By the way, what did he film? Uh, he did the Descent, the one about the female cave explorer encountering monsters oh. in England. Which was very okay. well reviewed, and he did Doomsday, which was sort of like Mad Max in Scotland. And but, he did, um, and he, you know, and he did Doomsday, which was a very fun post-apocalyptic action movie. So if they're bringing him in, 
I assume they're aiming for that kind of style, which is fine by me. I'm, 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 it, I'm very interested. Here's the thing, though. There have been, since the release of the Golden Army, like you're saying, it was Del Toro's Hellboy, and that's legit, that's true. But the thing is, there have been animated Hellboy films since then that more closely hewed to Mignola's style and were not as popularly received. Oh, they, they were so terrible. It made, they were also okay. made on a shoestring budget. But the but visually, it did cue more towards what Mignola did in the books. Now, ah, if there were... I disagree no, strongly on that. The, the they gothic took the stylings, from, They took the plots from some of the books, but in terms of design, they look like 90s Saturday morning cartoons. You had nothing of Mignola's, you know, shadow aesthetic and, and slow build-up works. They were just cartoons. Are we talking about the same movies here? Yeah, the Blood and Iron and the one with the screaming vampire heads or whatever. Hmm. I I re- I, I really didn't okay, like them well, and I think they did bad work. Hmm. Well, in any event, uh, I'd wish good luck, but to com- be completely honest, I don't know, maybe this is just me saying, like, you know, I was willing to... I'm willing to watch... As an example, right? Spider-Man Homecoming is the third goddamn reboot of this freaking property in as, you know, in what? 10 years? 15 years? Not long enough by any stretch of the imagination. But I am willing to watch that and to entertain that prospect because A, it's going into the whole Marvel shared universe, which I find appealing. B, I actually think Tom Holland is fantastic in the role. So... For me, that's a step up. I'm looking at this, and everything that, you know, the the director, the descent. Okay, fine, whatever. I'm not super huge fan of the descent. The guy from Stranger Things, ah, he's not Ron Perlman. Like, this does feel like a step down. So, the prospect of a reboot that doesn't offer any improvements over the original is just like, well, they can have it, I guess. You know, if this is what Mignola needs to get his ass in gear and do more of these, fine. More power to him. It's not anything that's going to appeal to me. Okay. Should we move on to actual comic talk? Comics. In this comic book, in this comic book podcast. And it's all yes. great things. No, I'm, oh, I'm wonderful news. I'm I want to start, though. <laughs> I do want to start, though, with a shout out to a fellow podcaster. Oh, Okay. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, View from the Gutters came back. This is the comic book uh, club podcast. You know, they do reviews of these books. And they came back with a review of Mockingbird, and they started out with a discussion and critique of David Gabriel, diversity, that whole thing at Marvel. And one of the podcasters, Joe Preddy, made what I found to be a very insightful comment, which was they were talking about the possibility that Gabriel's comments might have been misconstrued, right? Because he was saying, you know, we're hearing that retailers are unhappy about this or we're taking feedback into account on that subject. And what Preddy said is, it's not necessarily premature to react negatively to comments like that because you usually hear that rhetoric when a company is on the verge of a rollback, when something is about to get reversed. And here we are, Middle of May, and it's been announced that Black Panther and the Crew, which is Tanahisi Coates' second book at Marvel, canceled after two issues. Well, they will complete the first story. It's been they will complete the first. 
Yes, the first, yes. They, they will publish the first six issues. The cancellation has been announced after the second issue. And they yes. break the record of the previous uh, Christopher Priest crew series, which lasted all of seven issues. So, good now, to go. And I want you to recall, by the way, dear readers, that Priest at the time had a bit of a name as the... Got, as the Midas Touch in Reverse guy, everything he writes got cancelled. When he started writing Deadpool for a short while, he had the whole first issue of Deadpool arriving in the land of cancelled comics and meeting all of the other Christopher Priest properties. And when, when he heard, like, oh, Christopher Priest is writing me, everybody started laughing at him, like, oh, you are gone. You are dead in six issues, man. So Priest knew at the time that nothing well. was going to last. And this book... Beat Priest. That's amazing. Now, you see, you took that to the Priest connection. I wanted to bring up something a little more recent, which is, do you remember, and it wasn't that long ago, that they were celebrating Coates' arrival at Marvel as being this huge, big deal. He was this name author from outside of comics who was coming in to write Black Panther, and he was going to revolutionize the title. And, you know, Black Panther had just appeared in Civil War and was getting super popular, and everyone was into it, and it was going to be a great, great thing. And on the strength of that, they launched his second book. And third, and third book. Right. What was the third one? The World of Wakanda World with of Roxanne Gay. was also canceled, I think, after like yeah. four issues. So this, I think, is proof of exactly what Preddy was talking about, which is when Gabriel started talking about, oh, we're hearing that people aren't happy and, you know, we're, we're listening and with that, it's corporate speak. Right. The intention was always to signal that all of Marvel's supposed commitment to diversity, to having African-American writers on board, because, right, that was the statistic. When Roxanne Gay signed up, I think it was said that she was the first black woman to work at Marvel in, to, what, 70 years? To write, to write. There have been To write from Marvel, I think. yes. Well, let's be real, probably not. But in the off chance that there may have been the first writer, right, and they're gone. I don't, uh, Coates' core Black Panther run was limited from the get-go. He said that he was going to do 12 either issues. 12 or, yeah, 12 issues. So here we are. The second title has been canceled. Like, people, prepare yourselves. We are about to see a massive rollback of every single step forward that Marvel had taken over the past year. Odinson just turned back up in the Mighty Thor. Expect Jane Foster to get depowered very, very shortly. Secret Empire may have been extended for another issue, but yeah, we'll be back with Steve Rogers and Sam Wilson. Nobody really cares, right? Uh, Kamala Khan might make it, might not make Kam- it. Kamala Khan, really... will, Kamala Khan will make it. Kamala Khan will make it. Squirrel Girl will probably make it. Well, they're not going to change it to know. Squirrel Boy. Uh, I don't know. Captain I, Marvel I would... will still be... Carol Danvers, because they have the movie coming up, they're not going to change that. But, yeah. And some people will say, some people, some idiots, will say, oh, see, it's a a pushback against diversity. The comic market doesn't want to read it. No. What the comic market doesn't want is three Black Panther titles at the same time. Nobody should have looked at the success. And, And it was a success of the... Tanahishi Coates uh, Black Panther launch and say, let's franchise this right now because what yeah. the readers need is two spin-offs that they also have to follow to get the full story. Not everything needs to be a franchise. No, no, no. I'll rephrase that. Most things shouldn't be a franchise. You should have one Spider-Man, 
one Avengers, one Black Panther, one Captain America, one Thor. And it doesn't matter who it is right now. It doesn't matter if it's Sam Wilson or Steve Rogers or, or Jane Foster. But one title. You don't need to spread them. You don't, because if you spread them, they lose consistency and they taste bad. I'm using a metaphor. It's a terrible metaphor. <laughs> I can't believe it's not Marvel. Uh, it's, why? Because it happens to them again and again. They launch something, and then they launch like a thousand spin-offs, and then they all fail, and then they, well, I don't know. We're losing money and readers for some reason. I can't tell you why. By the way, we'll relaunch this at number one. Whoops, this doesn't work. I can't tell you why. Well, see, there, it's sort of a... There are two layers to this, I think. They're First both terrible, all, yes. The two terrible well, layers. <laughs> Yeah, but like, let, let's put it this way: when we, when they announced these titles, you and I were looking at the previews back then, and we both said at the time, "This is not going to work." Right? Launching all of these satellite titles off a book that starred, to be frank, a C-lister. We talked about that. That's true. I disagree with you on one point, though. When you say, you know, that that there are going to be neckbeards that are going to say this is proof that the market doesn't want diversity. You know what, Tom? I might be willing to concede that point. Maybe it's possible. Maybe the core fan base, the core readership that have been keeping Marvel afloat all this time, maybe they really don't want diversity. Maybe all they want are straight white dudes everywhere, as far as the eye can see, on every title. Maybe that's true. Maybe that is what the market wants and what you and I consider to be important and the people that we know to be, to consider to be important. Maybe that is not the high enough in terms of sales for them to prioritize us. That's fair. Here's the thing though. If that is your core readership, if the people that you are marketing your books to only care about the straight white dudes and will reject anything else, then Marvel really only have two choices here, don't they? Either A, they make the market care, right, by not providing alternatives, by saying there will be no more Peter Parker, there will only be Miles Morales, what are you going to do about it, huh? You're going to stick around. Because at this point, sunken cost fallacy is so ingrained in these people, they couldn't leave even if they wanted to, right? So... You either make the market care, you stick with it long enough for people to become invested and for them to realize that you are not going to back down, or you cater to them and stop lying, stop making these fake efforts to promote things that you have no interest in perpetuating because the market will not respond to it. Maybe that is the market. I don't know. Maybe that is the reality of the direct market in comics, that all they want is dudes that look like Chris, Chris Hemsworth. More power to them. If they want that, they can have it. Let them choke on it. But you can't keep trying to do both things because what you then do is you're, you scapegoat people, basically. Anybody who wants to see a face in comics that does not look like Chris Hemsworth is shit out of luck right now. But then, okay, so just at least be real about it. Well, in, in Marvel comics. 
Mar- no, you- I am talking about Marvel yes. specifically because they're the ones who made this a talking point, right? David Gabriel did not need to get up in a public forum and announce to the world that retailers were telling him that nobody's interested in diversity. He made that a talking point. So... Now, the next step is obviously they're canceling Tanahisi Coates' books. This was their big black writer who was coming to join them. Not so much, right? Now he's out the door. Uh, uh, I don't know. What's next? Kelly Thompson's Hawkeye is probably going to get canceled and replaced with Clint Barton. They're going to roll it back. We know that it's happening. We're seeing it happen fine. But that's the choice that Marvel need to make at this point. They cannot keep trying to pin the blame for lost sales on diversity when it was clear from the beginning that they were not doing the best job. Like you said, launching two additional Black Panther books was insane by definition. It was the stupidest possible marketing move that they could have made. They diluted a launch that could have, you know, and again, like we have talked about Black Panther's reception in Civil War. People were positive about his appearance there. They wanted to read more Black Panther. Marvel started releasing those collections of the Christopher Priest runs, right? The omnibuses. People are interested. And your first response to that, instead of building up an audience, instead of gradually inserting this character closer and closer to the core of your universe, right? Making them essential in stories, uh, uh, creating narratives that people want to look into. Instead of doing any of that, their solution was just more books right now. And if they don't sell, fine, we'll cancel it and then go back to something else later. Pure stupidity. Yep. And, uh, like, I'm ready to give up on the direct market. You know, it, it maybe, maybe Gabriel is right. Maybe these uh, retailers no, no, no. he's talking to, I'm maybe, not, no, I'm maybe they are. I'm ready to give up on the direct market. I'm ready to give up on Marvel and possibly DC. But, but, but that's, maybe... That's more, you know, my personal... No, no but what, what I'm saying is it's not even about the companies themselves, right? On some basic level, for all their stupid maneuvers, I can't blame them for the mindset of wanting to cater to their audience. And maybe their audience really are racist, misogynistic assholes. It's possible. I don't know. Right? You, I don't then know. Then you where create the a new are. audience. Exactly. You you, you attract you attract new people. They it's not like you, they don't dare. It's not like they don't exist in the direct market because saga sales, people people buy saga, people buy yeah. tons of saga, people buy Raina Kellenmeyer books. People... And, you know, the, the problem is that no one has ever conducted research in terms of where is there crossover in these audiences? Are the people who are reading Saga the same people who are reading Invincible Iron Man? And if they are, what is it that their reaction to why are they buying both of these books? What appeals to them in both of these titles? And if they aren't, what can Marvel do to get them over? Because the thing about Saga, it's not selling 200,000 copies a month, but it has been stable, rock solid well, for I assume, 50 I, issues. And I assume the trades outsell, well, I not assume, I know from the books and numbers that they publish at the end of each year, that the books in book sales term, Saga outsells every single Marvel trade. At this point, yeah. Saga number one, I think, outsells even the Civil War trade. Exactly. So, you know, no one's ever really looked into that, and I guess maybe that requires information that Marvel don't have access to. That's fair. But it's like, you have to, you, you know, the I, I honestly believe, and we talked about this when we addressed Gabriel's comments a few episodes back, 
I I honestly think that the the real problem with Marvel is the fact that they have feet of clay, right? That they will go and make these big statements and they will make these gestures and say, Iceman is gay now. Black Panther is going to be a major player. We've got Ta-Nehisi Coates. We have Kelly Thompson writing Hawkeye and it's going to be uh, uh, Kate... What's her last name? I forgot. I also forgot. Kate Hawkeye. Kate Hawkeye, <laughs> sure, yes. why not? Kate that's Hawkeye. Why, that, that, we, that's why her code name is Hawkeye. She, she sure. was called Hawkeye first, actually. And Kamala Khan is going to be on the Avengers. And, you know, again, like, they, they make these gestures, but they also fold at the first sign of adversity. They don't, I mean, again, to cancel, to look at this specific example, right? This book, Black Panther and the Crew, canceled at issue two. You cannot tell me that that is a reaction to anything other than first issue sales. Yeah. And e- even then, maybe just pre-orders. I don't know. Yeah. Right? It's, so, it's, I, I've said when the, the, those news were announced that if Marvel were a TV company in the early 90s, they would have canceled Seinfeld after the first half season. Yeah. They exactly. Don't, they don't give anything time to run. And they for, and somehow forget their own history. They forget that the Hulk was relaxed, was given you know a long, long tail before it found an audience, that the X-Men ran for 60 issues before it was canceled the first time. The X-Men were canceled. Like, the, yeah. uh, 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 listeners, the X-Men were canceled. In low sales. Yeah. Now, grant, Lo- granted, back then, low sales meant different things that they do now. Water of a, water <laughs> of a million. Oh, the, the terrible sales of, of the mid-60s X-Men. Only quarter of a million copies per month. How can they hold it above water? The shame, the shame. Uh-huh. So again, like, but if th- that goes back to like the whole issue of what they needed to do, and now it's too late. Like now, nobody would believe them even if they did do it. But when, uh, like, two or three events ago, or I guess you know, the best time for them to have done this would have been after Civil War, if they had met have made a very clear statement of, you know, for example, Sam Wilson is Captain America. We will not be bringing Steve Rogers back. We're done. Finished. If they had the balls to just make it clear to their readers that they were taking an ideological stance and sticking with it. Because they were perfectly happy saying, we're going to be diverse, we're going to have gay characters, we're going to have bisexual characters, we're going to have black characters and Latina characters, and it's going to be fantastic. And then they caved at the moment... The first hurdle showed up. The first sign of resistance. And again, like we say resistance as if sales aren't down across the board, right? Because yes, um, America maybe isn't selling great, but the mighty Thor is still outselling God of Thunder. So let's not act like there's some kind of uniform statement here. There really isn't. But Marvel, because their core fan base know... That at their heart, Marvel will cave at the first sign of pressure. All they have to do is make noise. All they have to do is go to a couple of retailers and be like, you know, like on South Park, rabble, 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 rabble. And then that that message will go back to Marvel and they will cave. And because they cave, nobody respects them. What would it matter now, for example, if next month or, you know what, in, in light of like if... They've been talking about what's going to happen after Secret Empire, right? That they're not going to do events anymore. They're going to do Marvel Generations and Legacy, and it's going to be great, and we're going to be, have all these characters. Like, yeah, the, the, the Legacy virus is coming back, and it's going to kill everyone. <laughs> it's, 
so it's gonna kill all the mutants again and the humans are coming back to earth it's saying humans again <laughs> I, I assume Marvel really hates the mutants right somebody at Marvel is like those damn muties and Jeez. it's well you know what it is it's, they they probably have a dartboard in their office of whoever it was that sold the X-Men to Fox Right, whatever executive made that decision, they probably just throw darts at his picture all day because I know that that has haunted them since 1999. I know that. Now, like, but you know, you and I always give the Marvel Cinematic Universe credit for succeeding as well as it did without its A-list characters. Mm-hmm. So there's that too. You know, that's a factor too. But yeah, like this, this cancellation, as much as... People, you know, fans might be inclined to write it off and say, oh, it's just, you know, it's low sales. It's not a popular book. It's Black Panther. Black Panther never had, you know, successful satellite titles. All of that may be true, but you have to look at the bigger picture here. You have to understand what this cancellation means going forward. What message specific fans receive from that cancellation and what that's going to mean going forward. And spoiler alert, I don't have a crystal ball in front of me, but I am making you a promise here, Tom, that sales at Marvel will continue to decline even if they eliminate all of their diversity characters, even if they reset to 1963. It will never be the sales of 1963. Their readers are too burnt out. They're too jaded. They've been given too many reasons to distrust the people who are currently running the show. And so there is no easy fix here. There's nothing, you know, Marvel is looking for a magic solution and they're not going to find one. Mm. And that's sad. You know, it's sad. I, I don't even, you know, like, I'm not going to sit here and say I feel bad for Tony Easy Coates because he's going to leave and go back to his no- novels and his, his, you know, nonfiction writing and he's going to be just fine. You know, he's not going to suffer from this at all. But I do feel bad for people who looked at his arrival at Marvel and at Roxanne Gay's arrival as a potential promise of, you know, a, a different voices and new voices coming into this very, very, very homogenous group. And that's not happening. You know, all the noise that, that was made uh, about, you know, Gabby Rivera, right? When Gabby Rivera started writing America, all of the press releases, oh, Gabby Rivera, this fantastic Latina young adult artist, she's coming to Marvel, she's going to, you know, America Vasquez, who people have been waiting for for years, it's going to be fantastic. And, sorry, I said America Vasquez, that's America Chavez. Strike that. <laughs> I could, you know, I'm forgiven for being confused about those two specifically, but Joe Casey's fault, so blame him. What happened to the Joe Casey America title from Image? Do you remember when he announced the, that he was competing with his own creation at Image? Yeah. And people were like, I, I guess it was, he was probably just trolling Marvel. Well, you know what it is? Like, if it had been any other company, it would have been like he's just trolling Marvel. But the joke of it is, because it's at Image, and we know that Image allow themselves to, let's say, take a leisurely time between announcing a book and releasing it. Oh, right. We announced it four years ago. <laughs> it might actually still be in the works. Who knows? You know, but... So, yeah, all they court... You know, Marvel courted the positive attention that hiring Rivera gave them. And in the same breath, they canceled Tanahisi Coates' efforts to more thoroughly establish Black Panther 
as a potential A-list character in the Marvel Universe. So you're not doing this and you're not doing this. So, you know, what are you left with? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. Yep. No commitment. I... Yeah. I think we should go on to the comics reviews because this news section has been long, long, long. Well, I do have one other quick comment if we're talking about changes in the in companies. Just to show that we do sometimes pay attention to DC, who have not been screwing up as much as Marvel, but just a quick note that there's been a bit of an editorial shakeup. So, uh, former Wizard Magazine... Ooh, I didn't think I'd be saying that anytime soon. Forward, <laughs> former Wizard Magazine editor Pat McCallum is now executive editor for all DC superhero books. Mark Doyle is supervising Vertigo and Young Animal, and Bobby Stone is handling a new Young Readers imprint, which I found unusually interesting. It's, it's, uh, it's, I think it's, it's interesting because, as we've discussed, I think two episodes ago, Marvel is farming out its young adult titles to stuff like IDW, which will do the Star Wars Adventures, and yeah. Archie is producing those cheap paperback reprints of old Marvel stuff for kids. And DC is saying, well, no, we can actually sell to kids, which... Good. You know, you should be able to sell superheroes for kids. That's not that's yeah. not some bold new audience you're claiming. That's your that should be your core audience, right? Yep. Eight to twelve year olds, not forty to fifty year olds like us. Yeah. Now to be honest, the young readers imprint wasn't the thing that caught my eye about this. It was just Uh, the Doyle appointment that I found troubling because what happened was they're saying that Doyle is going to be supervising both Vertigo and Young Animal. And there was no mention of Gerard Way in that press release. Now, I know that Way isn't officially the editor of Young Animal, right? His title is curator. But I, I don't, I don't know, something about the prospect of Vertigo and Young Animal being under the same editorial office strikes me as really weird because there was competition enough between these two imprints beforehand. And now it's like, I, I don't, I don't know. I don't understand. Doyle has a reputation, you know, Doyle's fine. He, he has been, you know, he's someone who has earned some respect in the medium because he's been around all of these projects, et cetera. But I, I don't, I don't know. I'm getting well, a bad we, vibe from this. Well, see, we know DC's favorite strategy at the time is using old respected IP and bringing it into crossover. So what I assuming is that summer 2018, uh, Young Animal vs. Vertigo is coming. Get ready for uh, Doom Patrol vs. The Sheriff of Babylon. Ooh, God. Uh, DMZ meets... Uh, what was what was the Batman spin-off they did? Mother Mother Panic. Mother Panic in the DMZ. We Free versus Bug and... Oh no! Not We Free! I don't know. Young Sandman meets the Teen Titans in... Young Sandman and Shade the Changing Girl, a romance comic. I would actually read that. (laughs) (laughs) See, you're saying that and I kind of want to read it. I'm like, yeah, Yeah, if if you want to do a romance comic, like a young adult love comic featuring the new, the young Sandman and Shade the Changing Girl, I'm all over that, guys. Yeah, you're saying that like it's a bad thing. I'm like, hmm, that sounds nice. Uh, And I think since you've mentioned Young Animals, it's a good time to jump to reviews. Yes, let's. Uh, we're going to review, we're, we're going to, I think, cut short a lot of reviews because this has been going on for a while. I just want to prepare you, Sean, and you, dear listeners, 
there's going to be a review at the end of, of this episode of a certain button-related comic that I've read. Ooh, I know what that is. Yeah. Okay. But, uh, well, but let's start with Young Animal, right? Yes. So this was actually the book that we both reviewed, which, you know, I'm happy to kick off with it. Uh, this is Bug! Exclamation point, the Adventures of Forager Number 1 uh, by all the Allreds. Right? We've got Lee, Lee Allred writing, Michael Allred on art, Laura Allred on colors. It's a six-issue miniseries from Young Animal. And doesn't doesn't Michael Allred has, like, a niece who wrote some back issue? I She has to be there somewhere. She's, like, stapling them or something. <laughs> it's the Allred family reunion! Yes, yes. Well, so, what's it about? What's, what's this? Who's this bug person? Okay, so bearing in mind that I'm not the most familiar with the new God's Uber as it is, uh, here's what I do know, because I did see Bug in the Justice League animated series. He's this lower caste person who lives on New Genesis, uh, the ones that worship High Father and the new gods, and Bug specifically seems to be someone who adventured alongside the new guards because he knows Orion, he knows um, you know, some of those heroes... There's some confusion in the issue, at least for me, in terms of, you know, he he was dead and then he was alive. I'm guessing that's a reference to it seems a crisis like a, of some it kind. It seems strangely like a direct continuation of the Kirby's actual New God series. Not not any of the recent revivals or revisions or the Dark Side War or whatever Jeff Johns did. It seems like he's just doing the new adventures of Bug, uh, of the Kirby version. Right. Which is strange because, you know, they, they make specific references to, you know, something happening. But then, um, well, okay, so we'll get to this. So Bug wakes up in this uh, sort of weird house on Earth. He walks around. He finds this ghost girl with a talking teddy bear. There are dominoes involved. And that part is like, on the one hand, it's confusing. And I feel like it would make more sense to people who are more familiar with what may have been going on with this guy in, in previous books. But I was sort of like, I'm willing to accept that as the initial mystery. It works well enough as it is. And then the Allreds bring back... See, this is where I'm not sure about the continuation issue. Lee Allred brings back Hector Hall, of all people. The, right? uh, the, the, last... the Sandman, the original Kirby Sandman, not the yeah. Neil Gaiman one. Though he did Who, appear quite frankly, in... Yeah. Yeah. The last time anybody had anything interesting to say about Hector Hall was that he was the husband of the woman who eventually destroyed the dream world, right? Lyda Hall was a much bigger character in Game and Sandman than Hector Hall ever was. Yeah, it's, it's one of those characters that his original appearance has been overshadowed by the reinterpretation. It's like, since we've talked Sandman, it's like Prez, right? Most people you yeah. know of Prez before, before the recent relaunch of the DCU knew him from the two-issue arc that he was in in Sandman, other, rather than in the one, I think he had like three-issue miniseries in the 70s. Yeah. There are a handful of successful contemporary titles that sort of nudge out the predecessors. Mm -hmm. And Sandman, I mean, this might also be part of, to the best of my knowledge, he also wasn't a character who showed up a lot in post-Sandman works specifically out of respect for Gaiman. Well, and he wasn't one of the most popular of DC's Kirby creation. I don't think anybody was 
gunning for a revival anyway. He wasn't the yeah. new gods. He, he wasn't even Omec. Yeah, but now he, what he I was, do like, appreciate... He was, he was like, yes. Oh, go ahead, go ahead. No, I'm saying he was like the 12th Kirby character on the right of the spread that they always do, like, in memory of Kirby. And, you know, you have, if you're DC, you have the new gods, and you have Omec, and you have the demon, and, like, uh, in the third row on the back, you have, like, the original Sandman. <laughs> waving that's and, fair with, with his two like uh, nightmare friends glob and blog or whatever stomp or something I don't know no that, that's an excellent point now I do have to give all red credit here all of them when I say all red I guess okay well, well I do have to give the all, all red credit the all reds credit here because this could have easily been a wild dog situation Right? Where he's doing a deep pull. I mean, look, I didn't recognize this guy at first. They had to keep saying his name a couple of times before I'm like, wait, the Fury's husband? That's who we're going with? Fine. Okay, whatever. Different continuity, blah, 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 blah. But they, because there's all of this uncertainty about, you know, dreams, false realities, you're not sure what's actually going on. Bug himself doesn't really understand what's happening. I was more willing to go for that than I was with Cave Carson when they pull that last page reveal and I'm staring at this t-shirt and a butt naked guy and I'm like, well, who? Why is this a cliffhanger? I don't know. So that much I'm, I'm willing to sort of give it the benefit of the doubt. I also really, really liked uh, what they do here in terms of Bugs characterization because by definition... To the best of my understanding, this is not a character who stands shoulder to shoulder with, you know, Barda and Scott Free and Orion and all the the new gods, right? This no, is, like Bug, Bug is the, the insult name that all those new gods give to the lower caste people. Technically, his name right. is Forger. More, his name is technically Forger. They just keep calling him Bug because for them, he's like, he's literally an insect to be stepped on. Right, but even in the context of like his historical significance as a character, you probably wouldn't say that he's as important as the actual new gods. No, no, no. Right? Now, I, what I really, really liked here is he has this conversation with the teddy bear about how he perceives himself, right? And he says, you know, oh, I, I want to rebel and I want to do the opposite of what Highfather says. And whoever is speaking to him, it's not entirely clear, but this, this voice says, you know, if you define yourself in opposition to everything that Highfather wants, you're still his slave, essentially. You're still reacting to him. Just like Orion is always going to be a slave to Darkseid because everything he does is motivated by Darkseid. Directly or indirectly, it doesn't matter. That was a sort of philosophical quandary that I wasn't expecting because, and I hate to say this, but so far when young animal books in the past have tried to actually delve into something that's that deep, they usually fall flat on their face. This one worked because I was looking at it and saying, you know, that's a really, that's an insightful comment. That makes sense, especially coming from someone who, you know, when you say hi, father, I'm thinking here of somebody like Odin, right, from from Marvel. And he is sort of that, but to Bug, he is a god, right? So I, I found all of that really interesting, and, you know, overall, I liked it. Michael Allred's art, what can you say, right? Um, He's hmm. on point. 
I always loved his design and he's on point as ever. I, the thing is, he always had those intentionally stiff poses when he does action. And at yeah. this point, it almost becomes like a self-parody. When Bug and like, the Sandman leap at each other and they look like they're hanging from wires instead of moving. And yeah. am I supposed to laugh at that? I because think he, so. Because action action the... is not his forte. No, that, like, that might be why. Action scenes are not his forte. And he keeps on doing them. And it's sort of like weird thing because the comedy of it it's not ecstatics where the where part of the joke was the, you know the team of superheroes who hardly ever fight and when they fight it's almost like a side note to their uh, celebrity bickering and at the same yeah. time the actual results of the action were super bloody and gory which was yeah. neutralized by his pop art style here it's just like oh two people throw themselves at one another and I I do think that's on purpose. I think there is an element of humor here that's maybe a little more understated than it should be. Because remember, one of the first things that happened when Bug comes back is he imitates Metron. Mm-hmm. So, like, he holds up his finger and, like, points up and he's like, oh, if Metron were here, he would say. And then you have, like, Metron in the background saying this stuff. Blah, blah, so, science. Blah, 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 science. Exactly. So I think there is sort of a bit of self-awareness here that might account for maybe intentional stiffness on Allred's part, where, you know, these fight scenes are a dream within a dream within a dream within a dream within a fake reality, and then a guy with, like, an electric dome breaks in. You know, there's there's some kind of a, a touch of absurdism without oh, going too far well, overboard. Well, yeah, it's, it's all, it's the Allred's. A touch of absurdism yeah. is a given. Two things that I do like about this specifically, it's a packed issue. And the plot is built on, the, you know, well, you have the Sandman. It's only a dream happens not once, but twice. But it, <laughs> but it doesn't feel cheap because it's not the end of the issue. It's not like, oh, it was a dream and then the issue ends. If you want to read more, pay $4 extra for the next 20 pages. Because the issue is so well designed in terms of, in terms of layout and page count and panel count, you have like... 10 issue grid you have nine issue grid and so you don't feel like you've been cheated it yeah. doesn't it isn't just a chapter in a graphic novel it's an actual issue of a comic worth reading by itself and b the fact that it's a six issue mini tells me oh he, he has a solution to all those cryptic announcements which he's not, of course he's not, raises... he's not just gonna drag it on forever and ever yeah well this is a mini series let's not forget yes yes six issue you know, yeah. So there's that, uh, which raises the question: uh, Are you sticking around? I think I'm gonna wait for the trade anyway because the truth is there's so much of Allred stuff classic that I haven't read yet. That when you tell me there's a new Allred coming out of, I still haven't read like 99% of Mad Men. I should probably get that first. Uh, yeah, that would probably make sense. Uh, Although I guess it's because, you know that that tends it's, it's and and it's one of those classic Kirby New Gods problem, which is mm, I, it's kind of like it should have probably started and ended with Kirby. Like there's been decent stuff made with all those characters, the Walter Simonson Orion series. Uh, when Grant Morrison wrote the JLA, he had that great uh, Dark Side arc. But overall, it always feels a bit forced. Those characters were so much of their time, of the mm. late 70s, 
post chariot of the gods type thing and nowadays yeah, I don't... and nowadays whenever they're brought back into the mainstream DCU by even by the most talented people and they've just announced a Mr. Miracle series by uh, Mitch Gards and, and Tom King my first reaction is eh do something else mm. because if I, if I want to get modern day Kirby I'm just gonna read the Tom Cioli work even if it's not using the Kirby characters it's more Kirby-esque than anything that you'll do with the actual Kirby characters hmm um well I see I kind of agree with you I think that If someone wanted to create a new god sub franchise in the DCU you couldn't go you couldn't use Kirby's designs you just like you can't do it because it's always going to be like like you know like a third generation Xerox you know it's mm-hmm. a copy of a copy of a copy of a copy of a copy and yeah we still fetishize Kirby's artwork to ridiculous extents but at the same time, You know someone like Tom King or even someone like Michael Allred you know somebody who thinks off the wall I think could do good work with limited self-contained perspectives on these characters as long as you don't try to turn it into some big cosmic thing because that was Kirby's deal right Kirby was all about the big galactic shifts and the cosmic you know people flying around everywhere you don't necessarily have to do that Tom King would be the smartest person in the world to take Scott free and do the opposite of that because going cosmic you know you can't beat Kirby you can't do it nobody no. would allow you to do it even if you could so that part you could let go but I think like a lot of characters from the 70s that had to be tweaked and revised and In order to become acceptable today I think there's something in the new gods that could be translated you know you could make something new of them but you have to let go of that you know that attachment to the old style you got to rethink it and I think you know of all people Morrison was the wrong person to try and do this right he had that thing where like dark side was uh, a manager of a dance club or something and Yep, yep. Was that the Dark Crisis? Side Club? Yeah, which, you know, come on. I, 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 I kind of liked his Shiloh Norman Seven Soldiers miniseries, but that felt so unconnected to the rest yeah. of the... It was... Because Morrison's thing at the time was always nesting future stories, so he was doing Justice League and seeding up Seven Soldiers, he was doing Seven Soldiers, seeding up uh, Final Crisis, he was doing Final Crisis, seeding up I don't know, going out to the supermarket to buy buttermilk toast. Yeah. Mm. Oh, no, you're right. Um, ooh. Don't get me hungry. It's been a long day. <laughs> anyway, so yeah, so that's Bug. I, I am also sticking around. Ooh. I like the first issue. I think it flowed well. Uh, the issue of like, lack of clarity with regards to Bug, I'm willing to treat it as an in-story mystery and go from there. Okay, you've also read uh, Misfit CD number one, right? I have. Uh, speaking of, you know, cute metafiction. So this is by Kirsten Kiwi Smith and Kurt Lusgarden. Art by Naomi Frankwiz, colors by Brittany Peer from Boom. Now, I think this is an ongoing, even though the premise leads me to expect otherwise. Well, it's Boom, so if it's successful enough, even if it was a mini, it's an ongoing. Uh, yeah, that's, I guess. That, that's, the boom, that's the Boom way. No, but I'm... 
the title but unlike but you see boom usually does that with titles where the premise could potentially go that far here basically that high concept is uh canon cove is this miserable little fishing town in the middle of nowhere uh, its only claim to fame is that it was the setting of a popular movie that readers will recognize as The Goonies, right? They call it The Gloomies. It's not fooling anybody. So it was this teen movie about a bunch of kids who go out on an adventure, blah, 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 blah. 20 years later, our protagonists, who are a group of girls living in Cannon Cove, have grown up, you know, becoming experts in how to channel tourists who are only interested for that, Right. Now, uh, at the same time, the psychotic children of an old landowner in Cannon Cove are determined to steal back a locked chest that he donated to the local museum. And the girls find a secret map hidden in the chest, which means, you know, time for adventure, time for a treasure hunt. So what this is, is basically a gender-swapped Goonies in a town that is, in story, the setting of a fictional Goonies. That's clever. We are you know, getting I, close, I think, to post-1980s adventure stories overload between that and Paper Girls and Stranger Things and four kids walking to a bank. I'm like, whew! Okay, give me a bit of a rest might be needed for that genre. There are other decades that existed in human history other than the 1980s. Well, yes and no. I think that there's... You're right that it is sort of a type that is... I mean, even outside of media, right? Stranger Things being as popular as it was. Gravity Falls is very much that. Absolutely. But I think there there is still value, in my opinion, of the metafiction that is a direct commentary. Like, all of those other examples, Stranger Things doesn't explicitly cite E.T., right? It doesn't talk about that text specifically it's sort of a general attempt to recreate that sense of like you said the the mid 80s late 80s teen adventure right the group of friends who go out and stand by me is another example right a lot of those i what i like about misfit city is that it's a more direct use of that because this is a story about people who grew up on the set of a story about kids their age who went on an adventure and now they're going on an adventure as well and being chased by people who are not the Italian mob from Goonies but are close enough, right? These two very violent, psychotically disturbed siblings. Mm. You have to imagine that there's going to be, uh, what was his name? Sloth. There's going to be a sloth here at some point, Right. Okay. And, you know, someone may actually rip their shirt off and there'll be like a Superman emblem underneath. It could happen. So that thing, that I think distinguishes from sort of the more generic attempt to recreate it for nostalgic purposes. Here, it what Smith and Lustgarden seem to be doing are making a direct commentary on the Goonies specifically. And yeah, the Goonies is like 20, 30 years old at this point. That's fine. But I am kind of curious, you know, why did they pick the Goonies? What are they going to do with it? Because, you know, the Goonies didn't exactly reinvent the wheel. It was it was well done for what it was trying to be. But it didn't, you know, create a genre. It didn't, like, light any flares in Hollywood or anything. You know, most of the people who were in the Goonies did not go on to have smash careers or anything like that. 
So you leave Sean Austin alone. Oh, you, you, you know, leave I, that guy alone. He's you a know, you, he's a treasure, he's, Sean. He's a joy. He's Sam. But I mean, there's him. But then there's also Corey Feldman. You know, like or, no, that's, ever, guy, that's a guy. That really <laughs> like I mean, I'm, yeah, I'm, like pity. Like Sean. Sean Austin at least has something. Corey Feldman has, from the looks of it, some kind of STD that's messing with his brain chemistry, but that is not for me to say. Um, so yeah, so I, I, I think we are, I agree with you that we're, we're sort of reaching the threshold of enough is enough. Like in terms of going back and just trying to recreate the feel of it over and over and over again is maybe starting to wear thin, but I am, more interested in it when it is taking, like, if there were, if this hadn't been, this could have just as easily been Star Wars. It could have been, uh, The Last Starfighter, right? It could have been anything. Mm. So when they're, when they are communicating with specific artifacts of the 80s, I'm more interested in that because then you have a, a clearer template to compare to, right? And like the fact that they're all girls and that in the Goonies they were all guys except for that one girl and her friend. Right? Where it was all about, you know, awkward makeouts, and then Josh Brolin showed up for some reason. You know. Josh Brolin like, doesn't need a reason to show up. Just being Josh Brolin is He was look uh, He was looking I, I, for the I'm, Infinity Jam. Looking at the art by uh, Naomi Frankie's sister, yeah. right? Yeah. yeah. Art cover art, Naomi Frankie's. And it's also one of those things that when Boom when Boom uh, Boombox just started. It was very much a breath of fresh air having this house style. But also, I think at this point, they should allow a bit more diversity because I don't think it's the artist. I think somebody's up in management saying, you're doing a boombox series, miniseries, whatever. You should work like this. You should do the Lumberjanes-esque style design. And it's starting to feel also a bit limited. As much as I enjoyed this style... And it's good for storytelling, and it's good if you're doing you know, like bright, colorful kids comics that kids can enjoy. Maybe this isn't um, bright though. I'm, I'm, I'm looking at bright? previews. I'm saying no, I'm, but if you look at the actual issue, it's not bright at all. Like most more, of the more scenes, shadowy. No, no, most of the scenes happen at night. Like they're again because they're in this really dingy. Fishing town, there's a lot of gray, there's a lot of brown. You know, oh. the characters themselves are drawn as having, you know, for example, uh, the, um, the names unfortunately didn't stick with me, but, you know, the, the museum keeper has, you know, blue braids, right? But, like, in, in something like Lumberjanes, that's the artistic aesthetic for the entire world. Everything is brightly lit and colorful and crazy. Here, I think, you know, there are, the girls have individual styles, some of which are more crazy and colorful and some are less, but the overall scenes tend to be a little more, there's sort of a dirtier aesthetic, I think. A lot of nighttime scenes, a lot of poorly lit scenes. I, I wouldn't. I would disagree with the uh, okay. with the lumberjanes classification specifically. Okay. Now, do you overall recommend it? Or are you going to stick uh, yeah. to the series, or are you going to wait for a trade? Well, no. I, what I'm going to do is I'm going to stick with. Uh, I'm going issue by issue. I'm sticking around. the The thing is, though, I am going to pay closer attention to whether or not this is intended to be a mini or an ongoing. Because, like I said, my 
chief concern here is I don't think that that's a plot that can be stretched out too far. At some point, you know, they're going on an, an adventure with a treasure map. You can't really decompress that too much. Six issues, okay, maybe 12 issues, but I don't, I don't think it can go on for more than that. And if I felt that it, it was and that there wasn't a direction, I might be more hesitant to stick around. But for now, you know, I'm, I'm on board. Okay, uh, now I've promised you and our dear listeners uh, a button-based review, right? Yes. Yes. So, Push the button. Uh, okay, Push let's button. do that. I'm going to talk about Button Man Volume 1, The Killing Game by John Wagner and Arthur Ransom. Because what, what, what other button-based comic is there to talk about? Uh, oh, well, oh. Oh, yes, yes, yes. Okay. Sean, you, re- you didn't actually think that I'd read that. I actually kind of did. No, 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 no. I mean, it's you, a, it, you know, you because you have more, <laughs> you have more intestinal fortitude for dealing with that bullshit than I do. <laughs> I have too much of respect for Watchmen and Alan Moore to allow this to. <laughs> no, no, no. I'm gonna talk Button Man Volume One: The Killing Game. It's a 2008 yes. strip written by John Wagner and drawn by Arthur Ronson. Uh, originally meant for, I believe, either Toxic or Crisis, one of those spin-off alternative magazines that folded too soon, so therefore it was imported back into 2000 AD. And it's, you can see that it doesn't fit with the other 2000 AD fair because it's not a science fiction story, it's not a fantasy story. It's just a low-down thriller about a guy who was in the army... And when he goes back to the civilian world, he's recruited to, like, a game of mercenaries, rich people pitting former soldiers and mercenaries one against another and betting on the odds for their sick joy of it. Uh, You talked about this when they've announced a possible TV show about one year, two years back, and you said, I believe that this was an average series, that this was basically didn't float above its own about its own plot. Well, it did go on for four books. Yeah, so I'm bear, only talking about book mind. one. Yeah, it, it, it was, like, my perspective on it is, you know, Harry Exton, it's hard for me to say that he is a character who surprises you at any point. Mm-hmm. You know, he it's kind of, and it all goes kind of predictably. Once yeah, you they're trying. Understand- yeah, he signs in and he kills some people, and then they're like, "Well, you can you you have to keep doing it." And he's, ah, I'd rather retire. And then, well, retire, eh? We'll see about retirement, Mister Exton. Yeah, C- cackling, patting a cat evilly, mustache twirling. Yeah, uh, the guy doesn't have a mustache. And doesn't have a cat either, which is quite a shame. Uh, that I'm, you know of. Now, recognizing that and completely agreeing with you on the point of this being exactly what it is in terms of book one, even the so-called twist where it starts with him breaking into the offices of some rich psychotherapist and c- confessing what happened before. Well, obviously, he's not just doing that. He, he's there because the psychotherapist is one of the people running the game. It's... It's not a surprise. It's not a shock to anybody. Mm-hmm. But in sheer terms of craft and storytelling, I think it rises above the rest. And a lot of it is Arthur Ranson, whose 
an amazing, superb, astonishingly beautiful artist. Uh, he's mostly known, if he's known at all in the U.S., from doing uh, the Judge Anderson stuff with uh, yeah uh, with Ellen uh, with Ellen Grant. He's he's the one chosen to do the more out there stuff. He did Shambhala. He did Satan, which was ju- you know Judge Anderson versus Satan, which was very Satan. Very, yeah, and it was a very weird serial. And here he's playing it more down to the surface, and the way he sort of overcompensates about just being have to draw people shooting people is that he's doing those really nice uh, cuts where. You know, the background becomes the foreground, becomes some animal that is then in the background of the next scene. So you have right. those big uh, uh, poison fishes that are always in the aquarium and we sort of fold in and out of them as as Harry Axton is confessing. And we have like a scene with a snake where, well, you know, you think the snake is the dangerous, but actually it's the... What's the animal that kills snakes? Uh, not, not a possum, oof. no. Uh... Uh, mongoose, mongoose. <laughs> it's like mongooses. Yeah, yeah, you think the snake is dangerous, but actually, there's something far more dangerous out there. And yeah, you know, I see it coming, and I know what they're doing, but it's performed so well. And there is some charm to Wagner's completely unromantic uh, rip, cut away all the frills of it all. Because Harry Axon, there is no some dramatic big story. There's no reveal. He, there's no, oh, I've stopped doing it because killing people for the pleasure of rich men is part of our exploitative uh, capitalist system. He's just like, no, nobody tells me what to do. Screw those guys. Yeah. And I'm, and I'm willing to let you go away, but just don't come after me. And they come after him and he's saying, I'm going to have to kill you now. You're a problem. You, you could have walked away. I gave you all the options to walk away. And I've been on a kick recently of 1970s manly action movies stuff uh-huh. like The Driver and uh, Point Blank and Major Dundee and the the 1970s version of the tough silent anti-hero type which is so different than what we're thinking about nowadays and there is something joyous to the idea of someone who is completely professional about everything that he does yeah. Although Some... I guess the risk then tends to be that it's, you know, it becomes like competency porn. It turns into sort of, you know, th- there are no real stakes because you never really feel like Harry could lose because well, he's that good. Like he's well, the best. The, the, well, he is. He is the hero. I even in something like 2080, I always assume he's going to survive. The question is the how and the why and the how do you present it? Because again, something like a driver which is a movie about a guy who drives a robbery car. And the yep. question is, is he going to survive the chase? And the answer is probably yes, but it's how do you present that chase scene? How do you present the world that he lives and operates in? And this, I think, Button Man does superbly well. And it's not the best thing ever. It's not the greatest thing Wagner wrote, but, it's, but it is, it's so fun to read. And it's so ahead of its time in a way because well, I looked at the original issue numbering. This came out in 2008, like 709 or something. And yeah, and this was before they were really starting to... I mean, up until that point, it was very rare for you to see strips in 2008 that were not science fiction future-centric. Yeah. No, it's not even that. It's the style of writing that Wagner will 
in Judge Dredd will only develop later, the more uh, realistic, the, the less overdramatic silly. And I, I like silly Dredd, but I, I enjoy more of the, the recent stuff where he has to contend with all the things that he's done and the weight of the years and so forth. And this, in many ways, is so ahead of the game of the other 2008 stuff. Because at, at 1992, most of them were still doing either the fun action oh, well, it's stupid, but it's fun adventure stories, or the more horrible, ironic 90s type thing. I think it was about a year or two before Big Dave. You remember that crap? Mm. The gr- yeah. When Grant Morrison and Mark Miller were given free hand, and after that was over, everybody looked at one another and said... Let us never do that again. Let us let never... us never speak of that again. <laughs> and and you know Blair One was a thing, and then it was not space yeah. space babes was it or space girls? I think it was space babes. Ugh. Space girl, the space girls, the spice girls science fiction parody. Ugh. And this one came in, and it's just a well told crime story. If it if it had come out in Europe, and somebody told you, oh, it's an album, but one of those. Great European classicist. It's a Hugo Pratt album. I would believe it. Right. If somebody told me, oh, it's a Jacques Tardy story, I'd believe it. And that's that's like high acclaim. Mm. To just do what yeah. you want to do. No frills, no extra. Just tell the story as well as you can tell it. And to I be, really like to it. To be honest, I'll, I'll be honest, I think that might actually be the one reason why it... it kind of sort of clicked for me but not really like my problem with it was always specifically because it came out from 2000 AD you spend the entire run waiting for a twist right some kind of magical or technological science fictional Mm. you know denouement where where okay so these are just a bunch of hitmen running around killing each other to amuse other people there's got to be some kind of point to it that feeds back into the overall magazine's tone and there really isn't like no because uh, again it was i i guess the readers didn't do at the time it wasn't meant to be a 2008 story the wagon yeah, was at the time ultimately working for an alternative magazine and it's weird it's like somebody imagine somebody right now who's working both marvel and image and their image title get canceled they're saying well let's just fold it into the marvel universe i don't well, know that wouldn't happen. I, that's just uh, who's who? Who did? Um, like, imagine Wayward was canceled. And Jim Zog saying, "Well, now she's in the Marvel universe for some reason. I don't know why. She's just there." Yeah, but I think you know that that's not because Marvel do have science fiction esque comics. Like, it's not as big a leap. Okay. The thing yeah, that yeah. always. You know, the thing that always leaps out at me when I think about Button Man, not just in general, but even like in terms of the first trade, is always, you know, for all that the behind the scenes circumstances dictated, you know, this was not a normal situation. At the end of the day, it is still something that you would buy off the 2080 storefront. I'm pretty sure it's there, actually. Oh, yes, yes, obviously. You know, I'm they, pretty they sure just, that they're selling that. They've re released the whole series in like a big omnibus collection. Yeah. So I'm going to so it, work through that. Yeah, so, you know, it, it always feels like such a weird fit because this was happening at the time, like what was going on in the 700s? Uh, ABC Warriors was still around, I think. They were probably still doing Nemesis to Warlock. Um, Dread, obviously, you know, they, they were doing, this was before the whole sort of 
you know, they started doing slain. So then there would there would occasionally be like mystical strips with 2000 AD. They this, have this um, was right after America, so I guess yeah, it was because so, again, it was over. It was the time when they described not discovered, but you know, they they moved towards dramatic, but it was like over dramatic. I love Judge Dredd America, but it's a very super melodramatic story. Everything is yeah big and oversized, and oh, you've killed the American dreams. And then you have this story, which is like a tiny story about one guy killing some other guys, and that's that. And, and like you said, it's so weird reading it at this avenue. It doesn't yeah. read like a 2008 story at the time. Even now, actually, yeah, like, it doesn't read like Even now, it doesn't fit. Like, yeah, it's like, you know, because you've been reading 2008 books for a while now and it's like you're reading this and you can't tell me that there wasn't a moment of like what the hell is this supposed to be well no i, you know, I already like, i unlike you i knew like i wasn't expecting the science fiction twist um uh, but yeah it just, i i, I I'm, I'm gonna read the whole thing it's not the best of uh, john wagner which i i guess it's gonna be dread forever but it is if you liked history of violence which is the one one of the two things I think he did outside of 2080 that's still in print. Mm. Because most of these Marvel work... Not Marvel work. He did stuff for Dark Horse so with like Aliens and Star Wars. And I think most of it's just gone in the purge. But uh-huh. if you if you like uh, some of his non-2080 work, I think Button Man is a good place to start your Wagner addiction. Yeah. Yeah. And like I said, yeah, Arthur he- Ronson, man... This guy's in his 80s now. He's still amazing, and he was amazing then. Yep. I mean, the artwork really does speak for itself, and, you Mm -hmm. know, that's really all there is to it. The larger issue of whether or not it fits is, I mean, if you're able to pick up this book and divorce yourself from the imprint that it was released under, it'll be fine. I I I guess, you know, like, when you think about it, even this kind of story tends to get a bit of a twist when people do it today. Yeah. Nobody would just play it completely straight. And this one does. The, psychi- guess... the psychotherapist was his brother all along. It was his no, own of ghost. Uh, it yeah. was an alien. I don't know. You know, there tend to be a little, a little bit more. But um, if you want to see this as sort of a very straightforward uh, take on that specifically, it's, it's as good as you'll find. Yep. That's for sure. So you know, I Wagner think, is still a great talent. I think that's that. Any other comics to talk about? Something quick? No. No, I think we're good for this uh, thing. You know, some good releases. Yep. I enjoyed a lot of what came out, you know, over the last couple of weeks. And, uh, yeah, it looks like... Where are we right now in terms of middle of May? There's some good stuff coming down the line, too. So yeah. Uh, before we finish, okay once again, we'll mention this podcast is brought to you by... Seaquart, if you like this podcast, if you like what Seaquart does, you should probably go over there and Patreon them. If you want to yep. talk to us, you can find me on the Twitter at Tom Shops, or you can just mail to Seaquart and they'll connect us up if you want to. Yep. Sean, Sean is not on the Twitter. If you want him, you'll, you'll have to send the pigeon with his name on it. Well, that's the thing where I quote like the, the lady from Superman 3, where it's like, if you're looking for me, you're going to have to find me. <laughs> Uh, that's I, a misquote I know but you know yeah, it's, uh, it's a thought that so, counts yeah, I, so I think that's that I was Tom Shapira yeah. and I'm Sean Edry until next time 
Bon appétit